Hello, good evening and good day everybody. Welcome to the 54th live episode of Ask Abhijit. So today is a live uh, video chat episode. I'm going to be talking live to people on the video chat. As you know, yesterday we did not do the episode because there was this cricket match that people wanted to watch. So we have moved it to today. I, I know you did not enjoy the match, but anyway, that's how it goes with sport. So, um, excuse me. So let me take a look at who all is there. First of all, I can see Virat, Somnath, Arjung, Wopsi, Cherry, Utsav, Abhay, Akash, Virat, uh, Sunny Negi, Dungar Singh Chauhan, Saket Patel, Abhishek, Pindayala, Abhishek, Jai, Bijoy, Sharma, Bhavya Jain, Yuvraj, Samarth, Anon, Dutt, Shwet Jadav, As Menor, Terminate, Karthik, Brijen, Devanshu, Aditya, Meghna, Shivani, Lauliet, Prashant, Divyajit Singh, Divya Jyoti, Raj Khalita, and many, 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 many more people. It's great to be with you all. Thank you for being here. So today is, like I said, a live chat session, and I am going to prioritize the people who have not been on this show yet. So if you have already been in the show, I'm not going to take you today because we need to give opportunities to newer people. Lots of people want to join. I know that the, the studio is full right now. So I'm going to bring in newer people today. And like always, everybody gets one question, one question per person. So be ready with your best question. All right. So I'm going to bring in some new people today. So let's begin. Whom do I bring in? Let's bring in Pradyot. Hello, Pradyot, how are you? Hi, sir. I'm fine. How are you? Thank I'm you, sir, for well. selecting me. Uh, it's welcome. absolutely unbelievable for me uh, to interact with you. You are an inspiration for me. Yeah, sir. Thank so you. the question I had was, sir, we all know that we have evolved from apes to modern human beings that which uh, we are today. But it wasn't that apes were the first animals from which we evolved. So, so could... Could you please shed some light on this topic and uh, uh, explain how did it all begin? Right. How did it all begin? Very good question. Very good question. I'm glad you're asking this question because your teachers won't, ask, won't allow you to do this. They will say, read from the textbook. So how did life begin on Earth? That's the question. Clearly, uh, the, the apes that, are, that were our ancestors were not the first species that uh, came uh, that was present on the planet there are lots of species before that see our uh, closest ancestors were the uh, homo habilis homo erectus and they were descended from uh, the ancestor the common ancestor of the humans and chimpanzees and before that a few million years before that there was the common ancestor of the humans chimpanzees and gorillas which is about six or eight million years before today so that is the immediate ancestry of our species before that there were so many uh, See, about 65 million years ago, when the dinosaurs, uh, most of them went extinct in that terrible asteroid strike, uh, our ancestors were little shrew-like uh, mammals, very small uh, mammals that looked like uh, rats or shrews. So that was our ancestors. And if you go back before that, then we, our ancestors were fish, fish that evolved in the ocean, Right. And eventually they crawled onto the land and then they developed, they evolved the ability to breathe air. So they were fish with gills and then they came onto land and, and so on and so forth. 
so if you if you go back all the way to the beginnings of our planet we find that our planet was formed in the early solar system and initially there was clearly no life here on this planet it, and it was a very different kind of place it was a it, the planet was very hot the atmosphere was very different there was this initial phase of incredible bombardment by asteroids and rocks and comets and all that on our planet the atmosphere was very different it was composed of uh, other gases oxygen wasn't there when oxygen started uh, coming out it be, it was actually a poison for the first life on the planet so how did life evolve is the big mystery and uh, as of today to our best understanding of science we still don't know how life actually first originated on the planet where did it come from did it just arise from spont- spontaneously from chemical reactions or was it seeded uh, on earth from some some comet or asteroid we don't know as of now what we do know is that the planet is about 3 3 and a half billion years old and life emerged within a, within the first uh, within the first 500 or so million years on this planet so that's what we know but the origins we don't know what is the origin of dna because every life form on the planet has has dna so dna is the common thread that binds all life on the planet maybe it indicates that we had some uh, a common ancestor that gave birth to all the species that eventually happened to prolif- proliferate on the planet so there is a there is a, a strong possibility then the question is where did dna come from it's a very complex molecule so where did that come from did such a molecule ev- uh, arise spontaneously evolve spontaneously or did it come from somewhere else so these are the questions that we still aren't able to answer but that is what we need to uh, look into right so we know the uh, recent more recent history of the planet it's like the big bang theory we don't know what caused the big bang but we know what happened uh, over time kind of we roughly know what happened so this also is like that we know what happened but we don't know where is the origin where does the ori- where did life originate how did it originate right so that's uh, in in brief about this question so thank you for asking the question very good question and keep searching keep learning all right pradyot thank you thank you man all right let's bring in some more people okay so whom shall i bring in i will uh, okay so there are some people who have already been here on this show like i said i am uh, today i'm not going to bring them in again okay so i'm going to bring in some newer people let's bring in karan hi sir hi says been a dream to you face to face nice meeting you man nice meeting you where are you from i'm from bangalore okay great so what's your question so i have written down question okay in this case right. i did forget it okay so my question is we do see a lot of chinese food in india and indian subcontinent as well since china never invaded india but still after that we do see a lot of chinese food and have such a great influence in india but why don't we see british food in india since britishers ruled over india for 200 years see if we talk about europe we do see a lot of italian food like pizza burger etc they all made their way to india from italy also if i am correct uh, italy italy never in- invaded india uh, and also since turkish also invaded india we do see quite turkish food like samosa that indian love the most came from arabia so my question is how this all food migration happen and why some countries have edge on the basis of food and what is india position on this 
very very interesting question very interesting question so you know these cultural influences culinary influences etc don't always happen because of invasions sometimes it happens because of diffusion so for instance you had indian spices all across europe the romans could not live without indian spices india never invaded rome right yes. if you look at eastern africa the entire coast of eastern africa all the countries from tanzania to kenya to the to the somalis and so on and so forth ethiopia you see a significant amount of indian influence not just culinary influence but also other kinds of influence you know culture and influences the way that the kind of clothing they wear and so on now if you look at the history of china india has never sent a single soldier into china or into japan or into any part of asia and yet you have indian culture everywhere in in different manifestations whether it is cultural or religious or or philosophical or any other way spiritual indonesia the whole of southeast asia even japan all their Jap the japanese buddhist gods are actually hindu gods with uh, japanese names and so on so these cultural influences spread in a variety of manners you don't need invasions for that to happen uh, and india has historically always been a net exporter of culture in the past 5 10000 years always india has been exporting culture in the past 1000 years or so we have been under invasion we have been under occupation from foreign uh, invaders and as a consequence some of their cultural traits as we know have in, uh, have made their way into our culture yes. but the british for instance why why don't we have british food here because yes, yes. there is not such thing as british food the most popular food in england in in the british islands is indian food right so they took it there they took our influences there but they had nothing to give because they they don't have any great cuisine i mean uh, even in europe people make fun of british cuisine when it comes to italian cuisine it's very interesting the mediterranean yes. cuisine is very rich and varied because of the climate because of the kind of uh, different things that grow there and so on so that's why it is richer and it is uh, more influential and also because the romans they spread their influence uh, far and wide in the first few centuries of of the first millennium so that is one reason why there is more influence of uh, for roman or or italian cuisine and later on because of the travels of people like marco polo etc who brought in influences from china actually the noodles and so on so you know it's a very complex thing but the main thing is that you don't need invasions for culture to spread it can spread through cultural contacts through through travelers through traders and so on and so forth now when it comes to chinese food that's an interesting question you asked so chinese food i'm not sure how exactly it came into india but it's not really chinese food it's just what we call chinese food is actually indian food with indian spices indian uh, aromas indian way of cooking and all and so on i mean there is no such thing as chicken manchurian or gobi manchurian or anything it's just an indian dish which sounds chinese but it's it's invented in india and so on so it's it's a fusion kind of cuisine it's a hybrid cuisine i'm not sure how exactly it came into india it's a more recent phenomenon in the past 100 years or so I think there are these the Chinese immigrants who have been living in India for a couple of centuries, maybe in Kolkata and other places. Maybe they are the ones who started uh, uh, running restaurants, and that's how perhaps it was introduced into Indian uh, into the Indian palate. That's what I believe is one of the causes. And then slowly it caught on in the West. It's very very popular. So if something is popular in the West yesterday, it will be popular in India today. That's how it is because Indians copy the West. And yes, that yes. is also one of the reasons why why it's happened. So it's it, you know it's it's a variety of factors. But if you look at the overall history of the past ten thousand years, it is India that has had the most influence uh, culturally and uh, in, uh, from the sense of cu cuisine and so on uh, 
out of all the civilizations in the world. India has always been a net exporter of culture. It's only in the past century, couple of centuries, that India has started importing culture from other places, which needs to be reversed. All right. I hope that answers your question. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Okay, let us bring in somebody else. Let us bring in Swati. Hello, Swati. I can't hear you. Can't hear you. Hello, sir. Can hello, you hear I me now? Hello, I can hear you now. Yes, I can. Okay, hello, sir. Um, hello, where are you from? Sir, my name is Swati Diman and I am Haryana. Very nice. Tell me, what is your question? सर मेरा क्वेश्चन जो है वो भी इंडिया के नॉर्दर्न रीजन से ही एसोसिएटेड है अगर हम हरियाणा यूपी पंजाब बिहार जब इस एरिया को देखते हैं तो यहां पर हमें एक प्रथा देखने को मिलती है जिसे हम घूंघट प्रथा कहते हैं जो हमें इंडिया के बाकी किसी रीजन में नहीं देखने को मिलती तो सर मेरा प्रश्न ये है कि जो ये घूंघट प्रथा है ये क्या हमारे जो सनातन धर्म या जो वैदिक कल्चर जो ओरिजिनल है उसका हिस्सा थी या ये बाद में कभी इंट्रोड्यूस हुई है और अगर हुई तो क्यों हुई जी बहुत अच्छा प्रश्न है ये अगर आप अगर हम हमारी सभ्यता हमारी संस्कृति में के के पुराने चैप्टर्स देखेंगे आप आप किसी भी मंदिर में जाएंगे या किसी पुराने मंदिर में जाएंगे तो वहां पर आपको वॉल्स पर बहुत अच्छे-अच्छे स्कल्पचर्स देखेंगे पुरुषों के स्त्रियों के एटसेट्रा राइट मेल मेल स्टैच्यूज फीमेल स्टैच्यूज एंड ऑल उसमें आपने कभी घूंघट देखा है क्या नहीं सर तभी ये क्वेश्चन उठा दिमाग में वही ना एग्जैक्टली exactly. तो ये सबसे सबसे प्राइम एविडेंस है कि ये जो घूंघट प्रथा जो है भारत में वो एक रीसेंट फिनोमिनन है हिस्टोरिकली अगर आप किसी भी टेंपल को देखेंगे नॉर्थ इंडिया में साउथ इंडिया में ईस्ट वेस्ट आपको जो फीमेल स्कल्पचर्स देखेंगे स्टैचू देखेंगे उसमें कभी भी घूंघट नहीं दिखेगा आपको राइट right? और जो ड्रेसिंग स्टाइल स्टाइल है सेंस है वो एक्चुअली हमारे जो हॉट क्लाइमेट है उसके अनुसार ड्रेसिंग सेंस इवॉल्व हुआ था हमारे हमारे सिविलाइजेशन में राइट सो घूंघट प्रथा कभी भी नहीं थी भारत में लेकिन आज आपको दिखती है आज हमें दिखती है तो इसका कारण क्या है ये बहुत इंटरेस्टिंग क्वेश्चन आपने पूछा है इसका कारण बहुत सिंपल है पिछले एक वर्ष के अंदर के आसपास क्या हुआ कि ये जो अपनी महिलाओं का बहुत आदर करते हैं हमारे हमारे कल्चर में जो, जो सनातन धर्म या जो भी कोई भी धार्मिक कल्चर में महिलाओं का बहुत आदर होता है और ये जो फॉरन कल्चर जो भारत में आया जो इन्वेडर्स का उनके कल्चर में महिला सोशल हायरार्की में सबसे नीचे है महिला इज जस्ट अ प्रॉपर्टी ऑफ अ मैन और कोई भी महिला अगर जरा जरा भी अपना शरीर दिखाती है तो शी इज फेयर गेम फॉर एनी काइंड ऑफ बिहेवियर ये उनका कल्चर था इसके लिए हमारे आ, हमारे पूर्वजों को ये प्रथा अडॉप्ट करनी पड़ी कि फीमेल्स हैव टू बी कवर्ड कंप्लीटली और इसकी वजह से इसके कारण से ये घूंघट प्रथा और बाकी सारी जो प्रथाएं हैं जिसे आज मिसोजिनिस्टिक और पेट्रियाकल प्रथाएं कहते हैं ये फोर्सिबली हमें करना पड़ा क्योंकि हमारे पास कोई और ऑप्शन नहीं था अगर हमें अपनी महिलाओं की का 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 सिक्योरिटी सेफ्टी सैंक्टिटी वो मेंटेन करना था तो हमें ये सब करना पड़ता था इसके लिए महिलाओं को अभी घर घर के अंदर बंद कर देना पड़ता था और अगर बाहर निकले तो घूंघट बहन के निकलो ये सब प्रथाएं ये एज अ रिएक्शन 
एंड एज एज अ डिफेंसिव मेजर ये सारी प्रथाएं इवॉल्व हुई है पिछले एक हजार वर्ष में ही एक और प्रथा है कि नॉर्थ इंडिया में जब कोई विवाह होता है तो रात के बीच में होता है कभी दिन में नहीं होता है इसका भी एक कारण है यस इसका भी एक कारण है क्योंकि ये उनका भी एक एक और बहुत बुरी प्रथा थी इन लोग की कि जब कोई विवाह होता है तो ये मही जो जिस महिला का विवाह हो रहा है उसको ये लोग किडनेप करते थे एंड सो ऑन सो फोर्थ तो ये सारी प्रथाएं एज रियक्शन टू दी इन्वेडर्स और उनका जो उनका जो कल्चर था उसके उससे बचने के लिए हमें ये प्रथाएं अडॉप्ट करनी पड़ी एज अ डिफेंसिव मेजर इट हैज टू बी अ टेम्पररी मेजर आज आज इन सारी प्रथाओं की होपफुली जरूरत नहीं है राइट सो वी शुड नॉट लुक एट दिस एज मैनिफेस्टेशन ऑफ इंडियन कल्चर दिस इज जस्ट अ रिएक्शन सर्वाइवल मैकेनिज्म था ये और कुछ नहीं था तो हमारा कल्चर okay. देखिए हमारा कल्चर हमने मैंने जैसे कहा है बहुत बार कि हमने बहुत अलग अलग जगह पे हम अपने हमारा जो धार्मिक कल्चर है उसको एक्सपोर्ट किया है आप थाईलैंड में देखिए आप कैम्बोडिया में देखिए आप इंडोनेशिया में देखिए वियतनाम में देखिए कोई महिलाएं घूंघट पहनती है क्या no, वो कल्चर हमारा ही कल्चर है एग्जैक्टली सो दे फॉलो इंडियन कल्चर मोर मोर एक्यूरेटली देन वी फॉलो इट टूडे एग्जैक्टली exactly, सर और यहीं से सर एक और क्वेश्चन है कि इंडोनेशियंस ने ऐसा क्या किया है कि हमसे ज्यादा उन्होंने जो ये वैदिक कल्चर या जो सनातन कल्चर है दे आर एबल टू प्रिजर्व इट मोर बेटर देन अस दे हैव दे आर प्राउड दे आर प्राउड टू हैव हिंदू नेम्स इवन बीइंग इस्लामिक ओरिजिन या इट्स बिकॉज़ दे हैव नेवर बीन एक्चुअली इनवेडेड एंड एंड देयर कल्चर हैज नेवर बीन वाइप्ड आउट उनका जो इस्लामाइजेशन हुआ है वो ग्रेजुअल हुआ है and it is because their kings decided to adopt this religion for whatever reason it was never forcibly imposed upon their people uh, the mm. way it was imposed upon indians by destroying all all temples by by massacring millions of people ye nahi hua indonesia mein so they ha- they are still proud of their actual heritage to ye jo history hai na wo alag hai unka history alag hai hamara history alag hai unke unka jo islamization hua wo alag wo ek different mode se hua tha so that is the reason why they are still proud of their culture and they are more indian than we we actually are right uh, yes so sir, good yes. questions that's the start thank you so much sir thank you thank you for your questions very good questions thank you bye bye okay we will take some more people whom shall we take i can see many many people there let me bring in sayantan Well, hello <laughs> namaskar 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 how are you doing sir uh, fine i wanted to ask yes i wanted to ask one question yes go ahead why did rajput fail to why did rajput fail to fail to fail to yeah uh, means Bolye, it bolye. resist the turkic invasion okay why good did... question why did there so you see if you look at the history of the turkic invasions of india you will see that it's not something that happened in one week or one month or one year or one century the process began in the 7th and 8th centuries ad and the uh, turks were able to take over parts of india northern india especially only in the 11th 12th and 13th centuries onwards right and these so called moguls who are actually turks they only came in, in the, around the 14th or 15th i think 15th century so it's a long process and 
and the history which is not taught is that we resisted fiercely fiercely we had lots of victories and the rajputs they shed more blood than anybody else in this country to save the country to protect the country if you look Why at the history let's fail oh, sorry sir, sir. <laughs> okay i am coming to that right i'm coming to that so what happened is that there was this entire period of several centuries of extremely uh, active vigorous resistance to the invasions okay and the the invaders were defeated and beaten back so many times i can give many examples bapa rawal is one who kicked the invaders out of punjab and uh, saved punjab for over a century and so on so there there have been so many victories and so much resistance if you look at the history of the uh, the arabic culture let's call it islam they swept through all of asia in a very short period of time iran was totally islamized in 20 30 years turkey same thing happened all of these regions so all of central asia was totally converted in just a matter of decades in india after 1300 years they managed to convert 25% of the people of india can you see the victory there it's never happened in any other part of the world now why did the rajputs eventually fail because there was a lack of unity if you are not united then you're going to fail even if you may be the bravest people in the world you may be willing to give up your lives but if you don't do that together then you're going to fail and of course there are other factors as well they forgot chanakya niti once they defeat the enemy they let him go that guy what's his name ghori he was defeated by a uh, maharani nayaki devi solanki and later by prithviraj chauhan and both of these people let him go they forgave him if you defeat an enemy who is hell bent on destroying you and your people you don't let that person go you have to wipe that person out you have to eliminate the threat once and for all so it's a variety of factors there was a lack of political unity and there was this misplaced magnanimity towards the enemy so these are just two of the factors that caused to the event that that contributed to the eventual very slow very gradual uh, decline of rajput power in india and the slow creeping spread of the turkic invaders and their hold in northern india so okay do does it explain stepping also played a role when i say lack of unity it it you know all all that is is part of that you know when you are not united obviously you have it's because you have political differences you have petty jealousies and rivalries that is all backstabbing and all that if you put the country before yourself then you're going to be united if you're not united then you're going to be backstabbing each other and playing against each other and and uh, you know conspiring and so on and so forth sir, all right sir another sir another question no, only one question only oh. one question per person <laughs> i have to treat everybody equally you know i want to give opportunities to as many people as possible all right sir thank you so much for your question very good question all right see you bye bye all right mr unknown hi hello sir have you been on this show before yes <laughs> once okay I listen heard. i i Yeah so I'm going to have to 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 put you I mean to give somebody else an opportunity like I said I'm going to give new people an opportunity all right so next time hopefully okay I will I will give people a repeat opportunity once a month but not all the time all right I I want some new people to come in today all right bye bye
Okay, do we have somebody who hasn't been here before? Have you been here before? Then I'm not taking you. Otherwise, raise your hand. Okay, let's bring in Himanshu Rajput. Hello, Himanshu. Hello, sir. I am Himanshu from Faridabad. Uh, nice hi. to meet you, sir, Himanshu. Yes, sir. So my question is about uh, uh, invasion of Alexander uh, on mm-hmm. uh, on the KK Kingdom. So we about the Porus and Alexander fight. Uh, yes. Sir, there is a controversy that even Porus has defeated Alexander. Alexander has defeated Porus. So <laughs> my question is, so my question is even I have studied in some sources that Porus was defeated, and there is a and there is a you know a executive of Alexander in Gandhar who is yeah who is uh, who is administrating Gandhar and. Uh, Gandhar and Kekai Kingdom, and he was a Shatra Philippus. They used to say that. So I am not. So I think Porus was defeated. That's why he was there. Okay, good question. So this is a question that lots of people have, and there is a lot of confusion about this entire chapter of history. Here is the fact: there are only three Greek sources that talk about Alexander's invasion of India, and there are only three. Greek sources, contemporaneous or near contemporaneous sources that even mention Alexander. And then people have written thousands of books based on only these these three sources. And these three sources are not even actual contemporaries of Alexander. It's just some historian, Greek historian writing about Alexander. Right. Now, do we have any actual uh, archaeological zero archaeological evidence that Alexander came to India. That's point number one. Is there any evidence that he had any victory in India? No evidence at all. It's all based on the claims made by a couple of Greek writers that everybody takes this as the gospel truth. If you look at Indian records, there is not a single Indian historian who has mentioned the name of Alexander. It's as if the invasion never happened from an Indian perspective. And yet Indian records do mention Seleucus Nicator, who tried to invade India just a couple of decades after Alexander's alleged invasion. How come our historians, our writers, our kings and chroniclers, why did they... Hello. Can you see me? I cannot hear you. Yes. Yes, yes, sir. Okay, I think there was some uh, disconnection of some sort. I think we are yes. back. So my point is this, that uh, there is... Uh, so our Indian historians mentioned Seleucus Nicator in great detail, but they failed to mention Alexander. It's And this uh, invasion by Alexander is supposed to have...
Yes. I can see you. Okay, I think there was some uh, disconnection of some sort. I think we are back. Yes, sir. So my point is this: that uh, there is. Uh... So our Indian historians mentioned Seleucus the Elder, but they failed to mention Alexander. And this uh, invasion by Alexander is supposed to have. And we are back. And we are back. I think there is some internet problem temporarily. I apologize for the problem. Your side or my side? I'm not. I'm not sure. Maybe maybe it's my side. I'm not sure, but it's never happened before, and hopefully it's resolved now. Yes, sir. So, so the point. So the point I was trying to make, uh, if it, it if it works now, it's that there yes, is sir. no evidence. It's that there is no actual evidence that Alexander invaded India, and if he did invade India, then even according to the Greek sources, he was forced to go back because his soldiers rebelled against him. They refused to go further into India because they knew it was a it was guaranteed disaster for them. And Alexander went back, uh, supposedly, to Babylon, and there he died. So, if he did invade India, then really, what what really happened is that he must have suffered a disastrous defeat in the Battle of the uh, Jhelum. Is it Chenab, Ravi, Beas? One of those rivers, right? One of the that, that great battle. Uh, the the this King Porus, Purushottam, whoever he was, he's not even mentioned in any Indian source. Only the Greeks mention him. So what actually most most likely happened is that Alexander, if he did come to India, he suffered a disastrous defeat in India, which is why his soldiers refused to go further and which is why he had to go back. And most likely Alexander was very badly injured in this battle and that injury caused his death. Okay, so there is no mention of this king Porus, Purushottam, Puru, whatever his name was in any Indian source. It is a Greek claim. So why do we need to take these Greek claims seriously is what I would like to ask. Why do there we take is, their claims seriously and not our own historians who are who have failed to mention Alexander as if he, this invasion, was, if it happened, was of no concern to anyone. You know? Sir, it seems logical that Alexander has went back. So means he has lost. It appears to me. But when I saw the uh, about Philippus, I read about it. So I thought maybe he, maybe the porous was lost. So that's why. Yeah, I understand. This, this is a pro this is a question that everybody has because there is so much literature written around Alexander. It's based on only three Greek sources, and on basis of that, they have made all kinds of claims. So we need to treat uh, their claims with the same in the same manner they treat our claims. They say yeah. that your Ramayana, Mahabharata, etc. There is no archaeological evidence. There is no literary evidence. Blah blah blah. So we need to show the mirror to these people. There is no archaeological evidence of Alexander in India in Greece. Anywhere in the world, there's no evidence of him. It's all his uh, claims that their so-called historians have made. So we need to treat that in the same manner they treat our claims. That's it. Very simple. All right, sir. Thank you so much for your question. Good question. Thank you. Bye. All right. Let's bring in some more people. Okay. Let's bring in uh, Harshavir. Hello. Good evening. Hello, sir. Hello. 
सर मेरा क्वेश्चन जियोपॉलिटिक्स का है मैं ये पूछ रहा हूँ जो जैसे जो यूएस वो चाइना है ताइवान को कब्जा के लिए बहुत एग्रेसिव हो रहा है इस समय तो आपने एक वीडियो में कहा था कि अगर चाइना को जब भी मिलिट्री डिफीट मिला है तो उसकी जो लीडरशिप है वो कोलेक्स करिए अगर इस बार उसको जो मिलिट्री डिफीट मिलता है तो क्या वो सी जिनपिंग जो है कम्युनिस्ट पार्टी है क्या वो रोक पाएगी कोलेक्स को या फिर वो गिर जाएगी अगर वो गिरती है तो क्या इफेक्ट पड़ेगा उसका वर्ल्ड पे और इंडिया पे जी वेरी गुड क्वेश्चन सो मैंने जो कहा था उसको कहते हैं हिस्ट्री में डायनास्टिक uh, साइकिल्स डायनास्टिक साइकिल्स में क्या है कि एक डायनास्टी चाइना में इमर्ज होती है और फिर इट कम्स टू पावर इट बिकम स्ट्रॉगर इट इट कंट्रोल दंट्री एंड सो ऑन एंड दैट इज कॉल्ड द मैंडेट ऑफ हेवन जब तक ये कंट्री को अच्छे से रूल कर पाते हैं तो उनको कहते हैं कि दे हैव द रेट ऑफ हेवन लेकिन लेकिन जब वो हार जाते हैं ये जब कोई मिलिट्री डिफीट होता है उनको या ऐसा कुछ होता है तो पूरा कंट्री उनके उनके विरुद्ध में खड़ा हो जाता है और रिबेलियन होता है एंड देन द डायनेस्टी फेल्स ये एक साइकिल है जो बहुत बार रिपीट हुआ है चाइना में पिछले दो ढाई हजार वर्ष के अंदर तो मेरा ये कहना था कि अगर चाइनीज कम्युनिस्ट पार्टी कोई मिलिट्री मिसएडवेंचर करती है और उनको बहुत बड़ी डिफीट मिलती है तो फिर चाइना में बहुत बड़े प्रॉब्लम आ जाएंगे क्योंकि उनका जो जो ये होल्ड है कंट्री पे उनका जो लेजिटिमसी है वो चला जाएगा बिकॉज दे विल हैव लॉस्ट द मैंडेट ऑफ हेवन सो अगर चाइना ताइवान को इन्वेड करता है और अगर उनको वहाँ पर मिलिट्री डिफीट मिलती है तो फिर श्री शी जिनपिंग का एज प्रेसिडेंट कंटिन्यू करना ऑलमोस्ट इम्पॉसिबल हो जाएगा क्योंकि चाइनीज कम्युनिस्ट पार्टी में भी बहुत राइवलरीज है बहुत सारे इंटरनल फैक्शन है बहुत सारा पॉलिटिक्स है एंड पीपल आर सो अगर मिस्टर शी जिनपिंग ऐसा मिसएडवेंचर करते हैं और अगर उनको हार का सामना करना पड़ता है तो इट विल बिकम ऑलमोस्ट इम्पॉसिबल फॉर हिम टू कंटिन्यू एज प्रेसिडेंट ऑफ चाइना एंड इट मे ऑल्सो बिकम इम्पॉसिबल फॉर द चाइनीज कम्युनिस्ट पार्टी टू रिमेन इन पावर अगर चाइनीज कम्युनिस्ट पार्टी हाइपोथेटिकली कोलेप्स होती है देन द इंटायर कंट्री विल फॉल इन टू अभी पूरा जो विश्व है इट इज डिपेंडेंट ऑन चाइनीज एक्सपोर्ट्स चाइनीज मैन्युफैक्चरिंग तो वो पूरा सप्लाई चेन्स बहुत सारे सप्लाई चेन से सारे कलेप्स हो जाएंगे अगर ऐसा होता है तो इट विल बी अ डिजास्टर इकोनॉमिकली फॉर द इंटायर वर्ल्ड एक्चुअली और यहाँ एशिया में भी बहुत सारे उसके इफेक्ट्स आएंगे चाइना के पास बहुत काफ़ी सारे न्यूक्लियर वेपन से अब उनका क्या होगा एंड सो ऑन सो ऐसे बहुत सारे इश्यूज है इट कुड बी ए टाइम ऑफ कैस बट द चाइनीज कम्युनिस्ट पार्टी इज वेरी स्मार्ट वो कभी भी ताइवान को इन्वेट नहीं करेंगे अनटिल एंड अनलेस दे आर वन हंड्रेड परसेंट श्योर दे आर गोइंग टू विन वो चांस कभी नहीं लेंगे अभी ये बहुत अग्रेसिव बिहेव कर रहे हैं बहुत सारे आवाज बहुत सारे ऐसे एक्शंस ले रहे हैं बट दे आर नॉट इन्वेडिंग राइट नाउ दे विल वेट अनदर फाइव ईयर्स टेन ईयर्स पर हैप्स एंड इफ द अमेरिकन बिकम वीकर एंड लेस लेस एक्टिव देन दे मे कैलकुलेट इन सम पॉइंट इन द टाइम इन द फ्यूचर दैट इट इज द टाइम टू इन्वेड ताइवान लेकिन ये आज नहीं करने वाले हैं ये बहुत ही रिस्क अवर्स कंट्री है दे ऑलवेज hesitate before taking any big risk so that is the brief answer sir all right okay sir thank you sir thank you for the question thank you chaliye kis kis whom shall i take now i'm going to bring in some newer people newer people whom shall i bring in okay let us bring in three bikram hello hi sir hi sir 
ಯೂನಿವರ್ಸಿಟಿ and when that uh, means what's the question no sir sir we have read that turkey during the turkey invasion the huge libraries of those universities were been burnt near about 90 lakhs yes. or more than books just got destroyed then uh, some of my friend contradicted this fact that are uh, this a buddhist university how can you say that your history is being burnt in that university okay great so, so yeah okay so see first of all uh, when it comes to the indus valley region uh, what is the evidence that hinduism started there we find shivlingas that are more than 5000 years old we find a uh, 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 statue of the carvings and seals of pashupati shiva over there uh, we find statues of female figures with mang sindur right Yes, and so on these are the, these are the classic evidences of hinduism of what we call hinduism today so this yes. goes back many thousand years so this yes, demonstrates sir. cultural continuity for many thousands of years before the so called aryan invasion is supposed to have happened so yes. if if this is the classic science of hinduism and it was there yes. before the so called aryan invasion happened so that itself destroys their entire claim when it comes to your second question about uh, nalanda see yes, this entire separation of hinduism and buddhism was done by the british about 200 years ago before that yes. there was no separation of hinduism and buddhism everything was the same it was just dharma in nalanda yes. university in takshashila everywhere they used to teach the teachings of the buddha both the philosophy they used to teach the vedas also people like nagarjuna etc and other other indian uh, scholars who traveled to china and lived their lives in china taught hinduism taught buddhism taught the vedas taught the buddhist sutras they taught everything in china how did all the hindu gods go all the way to japan saraswati yeah. ganesh shiva mahakal all these hindu gods and goddesses are now today in japan they are part of the buddhist uh, pantheon of gods they have japanese names how did it, how did it go there if india was a buddhist country if our scholars were only teaching buddhism so this false categorization and and splitting of dharma into hinduism buddhism jainism sikhism as separate religions it yes, is something that has been imposed upon us and in, in, in into our minds by the foreign occupiers and colonizers of india and unfortunately our academics today are propagating the same nonsense that is why we all believe that hinduism and buddhism are separate things and nalanda was a buddhist university what utter nonsense yes. okay sir 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 i have another question sir no thank you no only one per person i'll take only two okay, you know sir. i'm i'm breaking my own rule so thank okay, you very sir. much thank, thank you, you. bye okay whom shall we bring in let me see let me bring in sai rakshit hello hello sir how are you hello i'm very well how are you doing i'm good sir sir my question to you is related to geopolitics now you even yeah. mentioned in lot of your podcast that china both risk coversing hai wo risk nahi leta they hesitate communist party hesitate to take risk then why doesn't india take advantage of that situation i mean that is even mentioned in like as far as i have read arthashastra they say that if your enemy is weak try to take advantage and so that you will get upper hand 
सर अभी पाकिस्तान तो वो फॉलो करता है when we are under some tremendous situation they'll take advantage they'll send in jihadi and they'll claim as if india attacked them so mujhe aapse yahi janna hai that why aren't we taking aggressive stance against china and pakistan i mean the present government is doing but i want to know from you that why are we still lacking that confidence well, excellent excellent question so i have said this in the past that china and pakistan follow chanakya niti way better than india <laughs> right yeah that's what we observe so the thing is this see uh india has certain moral principles apparently that we will not do certain things we will yes. not indulge in terrorist activities we will not indulge in targeted assassinations abroad and so on and so forth which is part of the toolkit of every geopolitical actor whether it is iran whether it is israel whether it is the us whether it is ussr whether it is china or whoever else or pakistan the pakistanis mm-hmm. recently killed some uh, baloch woman in canada right yeah uh, i forgot her name so everybody does it but we are morally superior so we don't do such things that is the gandhian mindset that we have adopted since the 1940s and it is still something that we worship today gandhian mindset we don't do the such things so that is one thing secondly to uh, do such things you also need to build up the capability the capacities to do that if you want to destabilize a foreign country that is your enemy then you need to invest in resources and covert actors in that country you need to embed people in that country mm-hmm. either spies or or whatever else so that takes time you have to invest in that you have to create the supply chains networks the communications channels and all that that takes time so so we know what happened in uh, morarji desa's time we had intelligence and inf- and so on networks in pakistan yes sir but he gave it to pakistan he he exposed everything he destroyed yeah. our intelligence assets all those people were captured and killed tortured he did that now in the 1990s there was the other prime minister ik gujral he did the mm-hmm. same thing ik gujral did the same thing he was prime minister for 3 months but he destroyed india's intelligence network in pakistan in just 3 months right so when such things happen you have to rebuild everything from scratch now i don't know what the manmohan singh government did whether they had invested in anything most likely they did nothing like that mm-hmm. so i i am i i feel that from 2014 onwards india has had to rebuild everything from scratch so that takes time it's not something you can do overnight because you need need to infiltrate people into various places which is a very hard thing to do and so on and so forth it's a, it's called a, it's called trade craft in the spy business and so on so you know and so these are the problems that india is facing right and that's why india has not really uh, done things the way israel and iran and other countries do that they take care of uh, of people who are inimical to them no matter where they are in the world and also when it comes to uh, countering china the chinese have been investing in their economy for the past 30 years 40 years they have built up an enormous mm-hmm. economy we have not done that now we are trying to do that but that also takes time their economy is like five times bigger than ours and therefore their military might is also com- is also proportional to that that's why we are not able to invest that much money in the military because our economy is smaller so these are the factors why india is like this but of course india should be more aggressive more proactive more confident and we can use a variety of means that are part of the chanakyan toolkit to further our national interest so i think it's a variety of factors i think we are changing now hopefully we are 
and hopefully we would see something different from india in the future yes thank you so much right? sir thank you thank you good question sir thank you Please. i have somebody called abhijit chawda can you see me oh sir main hu sir sorry sir mera naam som chaudhary hai main kolkata se hu एक्चुअली मेरी मम्मी और फादर बांग्लादेशी है मैं एक्चुअली यहाँ पैदा हुआ हूँ मैं एक्चुअली मेरा मैं बांग्लादेशी डिसेंट का हूँ जो भी हो सर मेरा मैं सर आपको मैंने बहुत बार रिक्वेस्ट किया था बट मैंने एक स्टैंडाई का मैंने एक क्वेश्चन सेंड किया था कि स्टैंडाई एक रशियन है क्या पास्टून मैंने सेंड किया था आप कमेंट उसका कमेंट भी किया था शहीबाल चौधरी करके जी जी वो मेरा फादर का अकाउंट था तो हाँ विकीपीडिया में हम सर्च किया था तो वहां पे एक बोले कि ये ये राजेंद्र छोला के समय फर्स्ट टाइम आए थे जब राजेंद्र छोला इंडोनेशिया और साउथ ईस्ट एशिया कैंपेनिंग कर रहा था दे यूज अंडमान एज अवल नेवल टेरिटरी तो मैं यही पूछा कि राजेंद्र छोला वन के समय हिंदुइज्म आया था अंडमान एंड निकोबार आईलैंड में ओके सो इट्स अ वेरी इंटरेस्टिंग क्वेश्चन एज वी नो आप जैसे जैसे हम जानते हैं सर आप ये बात हिंदी में बोलना सर बात ये हिंदी में बोलो क्योंकि आपका जो भी लैंग्वेज है इंग्लिश में होता है अब इससे प्रॉब्लम होते हैं मेजोरिटी लोग नहीं समझ पाते इंग्लिश ये इंडिया है दिस इज नॉट ब्रिटेन थैंक यू फॉर योर आपको एक गूगल गूगल मीट बनाना चाहिए इसके लिए कि 30 30 स्टूडेंट्स जो क्वेश्चन पूछ सकते हैं गूगल मीट बनाना चाहिए ये करने से 10 लोग बहुत कम बहुत कम हो गया गूगल मीट बनाना चाहिए आपको ओके ओके थैंक यू फॉर द इंटरेस्टिंग ऑलराइट। चलिए मैं आपका प्रश्न आपके प्रश्न का उत्तर देता हूँ जैसे हम जानते हैं चोला एम्पायर बहुत वाइड स्प्रेड था ऑल अक्रॉस साउथ ईस्ट एशिया इंडोनेशिया एंड सोन एंड सोफोर्थ एंड जैसे आपने कहा कि इट इज क्वाइट पॉसिबल क्वाइट लाइकली की उन्होंने अंडमान एरिया को एक एज अ स्टेजिंग बेज की तरह उपयोग किया होगा अच्छे से खोज की है की नहीं अगर हम वहां पर अच्छे से ढूंढेंगे तो शायद कदाचित हमें यह आर्कियोलॉजिकल एविडेंस मिलेगा कि किस समय में चोला एम्पायर ने यहाँ पर पहले प्रवेश किया था ठीक है विकीपीडिया में जब मैंने अंडमान निकोबार का रिसर्च किया था तो वही पर ही दिया था तो मैंने इसे आपसे पूछना जाए समझा था ऑल राइट सर लेट मी आंसर नाउ इफ यू डोंट माइंड ठीक है आप पूछ लो ओके जी 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 ओके सो सो मैं क्या कह रहा हूँ 
अपना ही उसका अपना खुद का रिलीजन मैं समझ गया बट ये बात बहुत अंदर से खटक रही थी क्योंकि मैंने जब अब अगर आप विकीपीडिया खोजेंगे तो जब आप जा एक बार विकीपीडिया में जाकर अंदाबाद निकोबार आइलैंड चेक वहां पर आप हिस्ट्री में जाइए आपको छोला पीएड क्या छोला डायनेस्टी के में कुछ मिलेगा आपको आप एक बार सर्च कीजिए जरूर जरूर आई विल डू दैट श्योर सर आप भूल जाएंगे श्योर नहीं भूलूंगा मैं याद रखूंगा क्योंकि कि लास्ट टाइम मैंने आपका एक वीडियो देखा टर्कीज का कि टर्की के बारे में आप टर्की टर्की और जो क्या कहते हैं मंगोल्स के बारे में आप थोड़ा और डिटेल में फ्यूचर इन फ्यूचर आप समझाएंगे आप नहीं बताए देखिए भाई मुझे रोज मैं समझ क्या आर्मेनिया एक क्रिश्चियन कंट्री है मुझे सबको चांस देना है दो क्वेश्चन एटलीस्ट मेरे की एक के अंदर आर्मेनिया किससे रिलेटेड चीज है आर्मेनिया सिर्फ ये हिंदुइज्म का ही पार्ट हिंदुइज्म का एविडेंस मिला है बट मेरा एक सवाल है कि बुद्धिज्म का क्योंकि आर्मेनिया इज वेरी क्लोज टू सेंट्रल एशिया और एंशियंट समय में और एंशियंट समय बुद्धिज्म तो सेंट्रल एशिया में भी एग्जिस्ट करो तो ये अजीब बात है कि अर्मेनिया में हिंदुइज्म का एविडेंस मिला बट बुद्धिज्म का क्यों नहीं ये बहुत ये सवाल मेरे अंदर बहुत खतरनाक तो आपसे पूछ रहा हूँ ठीक है मैं कंसीडर करके नेक्स्ट टाइम पूछूंगा देखूंगा ठीक है ऑल राइट थैंक यू फॉर योर क्वेश्चन थैंक यू ऑल राइट ऑल राइट ऑल राइट इट वॉज नाइस टॉकिंग टू हिम वेरी नाइस गाय ऑल राइट लेट्स ब्रिंग इन समबडी एल्स लेटस ब्रिंग इन मिस्टर निशांत हेलो गुड इवनिंग सर गुड इवनिंग आई एम निशांत फ्रॉम दिल्ली सर माय क्वेश्चन वाज व्हेन वी माय क्वेश्चन वाज व्हेन वी टॉक अबाउट आर1 बी एंड आर1 ए व्हाट इज देयर हिस्ट्री बिकॉज़ सम हिस्टोरियंस आर्ग्यू दैट इट वाज ओरिजिनेटेड इन इंडिया एंड सम आर्ग्यू दैट इट वाज ओरिजिनेटेड इन सेंट्रल एशिया एंड वी जस्ट फाउंड सम एविडेंस ऑफ पैडी इन गंगा वैली दैट इज ओल्डर देन टर्की You found evidence of what? I I missed that. Yes, sir. Sir Paddy. Paddy, Paddy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, all right. Good, good. Very good questions. So it's all related to the Aryan invasion uh, claims, right? So what is R one A? What is R one B? What are these two things? These are patrilineal lineages. These are called haplogroups. So what is a haplogroup? A haplogroup is an extended family. It's a group of individuals who are alive today. who are all who all carry a specific genetic mutation that originated in one person in the past so there are patrilineal haplogroups and matrilineal haplogroups patrilineal haplogroups are genetic mutations that are in the y chromosome which is passed on from father to son and matrilineal haplogroups are passed on through mitochondrial dna from mother to child but they are only uh, carried forward by women okay so these are two kinds of haplogroups now we are talking about r1a and r1b which are patrilineal haplogroups now people make the claim that this originated in central asia by what's the evidence the uh, concept is like this uh, a haplogroup originates is is 
how do you know where a haplogroup has originated you look at the distribution of this haplogroup geographically and whichever geographically whichever geographical region has the most diversity of this haplogroup is the place of origin because that's where it has been the longest and that's why it has diversified so much now you find the highest diversity of r r1a r1b etc r1 r2 all that in the indian subcontinent more than any other place in the world so it is something that originated in india and there have been research papers published about this okay the time of origin is about between say 17 and 26000 years before today so it was one male who lived in india between 17 and 26000 years ago who is the originator of this genetic mutation which is carried in more almost more than a billion human beings today men right so the origin is in india and the ancestral haplogroup of r if you go back in time is haplogroup f which is the haplogroup that uh, that more than 90% of non african men have so it is the ancestral haplogroup of more than 90% of non african men in the world haplogroup f which also originated in india about 65 or so thousand years ago so there is no question about the fact that the haplogroup you are referring to haplogroup r1 or r1a r1b all that these originated in in india now the these people this geneticists etc they give fancy names they call it uh, what step origin step ancestry and iranian ancestry and all that but if you go back further in time that ancestry comes back to india because the ancestry of the step ancestry itself was in india r1b and so on so these claims don't really hold any water they are desperate now to somehow keep their theory alive they are initially it was an aryan invasion theory they cited sources from literature to archaeology etc to prove that now all of that has disappeared there is no invasion uh, evidence of invasion no archaeological evidence nothing so they turned it into a migration theory now once again for the migration also there is no real evidence so now they are trying to turn it into i don't know so multiple waves of small migrations and all and now they are trying to base all of their uh, arguments on genetic arguments genetic data but even that is failing now so soon it will become an aryan tourism theory later it will be an aryan picnic theory and eventually it will just dissipate overnight so you know that's the thing Uh, so that's about r1 a r1 b and all that um, when it comes to paddy and all yeah 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 there is evidence of uh, agriculture in india whether it is the, it is in the ganga valley whether it is in the saptasindhu region punjab haryana all that you have the oldest evidence of arche- of of agriculture in india in the whole world it is at least contemporaneous with evidence of agriculture in ancient china you also have evidence of silk in india which is contemporaneous with that of china the earliest evidence in china and we have not even excavated 1% of the archaeological sites in india in the saptasindhu region so the more we excavate the more evidence we're going to find and our civilization's timeline is going to go back several thousand years right now it's about 10000 years old to the best evidence that we have in the future it it may go back another 10000 years so the evidence is yet to be found actually but you're right that the evidence does exist that india is the uh, place where the first evidence of agriculture uh, existed whether it is uh, it's mostly paddy paddy rice that's right so interesting you, uh, thoughts that you brought up thank, thank you, you thank you for the questions thank you all right whom do we bring in 
let us bring in let's bring in shashank hello can't hear you can you unmute please namaste sir namaste namaste how are you sir i am from jaipur rajasthan sir i want to ask uh, so many historians have tried to divide the history of india into various timelines some have used the bibliological form some have used invasion format and some have used the different timeline like ancient medieval and modern so uh, before the invention of uh, uh, let's say prehistory so some have divided sir can you just uh, clear this confusion some are trying to push one and one other uh, ideologies on the timelines of the history of india well you want me to give you the timeline of the entire history of india <laughs> no sir just a brief context so that i have a clear mindset when i read history books okay so let's let's start from the beginning the very beginning uh, that of of indian civilization that we know of from archaeological evidence is the oldest phase of the uh, saraswati sindhu civilization in the sapta sindhu region that is punjab haryana southern afghanistan northern maharashtra it's a huge huge geographical region so that is where india's civilization was born maybe it was also contemporaneously existing in the ganga yamuna plain but we still don't have sufficient evidence to conclusively prove that it is quite likely that india was just like it is today an enormous interconnected civilization from the very beginning but the archaeological evidence tells you that it is it began about 10000 years ago in the sapta sindhu region and then you also had the ganga yamuna phase of india civilization we have found archaeological uh, sites there that are very very ancient the uh, the city of varanasi is one of the oldest uh, uh, oldest archaeological settlements human settlements that we know of in the entire world so that is what would you you would call the indus valley or harappan or saraswati sindhu phase of our civilization which eventually became about 5000 years ago a highly developed fully urbanized very industrialized sophisticated and technologically advanced civilization so that was india the cities were very well planned grid system you had very good drainage systems and all that better than any indian city today right so that is the sapta sindhu and the harappan saraswati civilization phase of our history and then uh, you so we don't know where exactly the vedic phase was it is probably before that because the vedas don't talk about an urban civilization they talk about a rural civilization pastoral life and all that so the vedic phase came before that most likely and we still don't know exactly when the ramayana happened mahabharat happened people have made all kinds of claims but they, these claims have not been proven yet so that is still quite murky then we come to the uh, to about 3000 years Nilkanth yes, Oak I, is I, I am aware of all these claims. I am aware of these claims. These claims have not been proven. If somebody makes a claim, it is not proven until other people are able to validate and corroborate that. So we need to be very acutely aware of the fact that if somebody has made a claim, it doesn't mean it's it's proven. As of today, none of these cl- competing claims are proven. Please understand that. I would like to say this to everybody. i i am aware of the work that various people have done and there is very monumental work of course but the scientific process tells you that the claims have to be independently validated verified and corroborated until that happens we cannot start believing any claims all right so, so, so that's about that then we had the uh, mauryan phase of our, our civilization the buddha 
Mahavir, Jainism, the Mauryan phase, and then you had the invasions of the Indo-Greeks, then the Kushans and the Scythians, then you had the Gupta Empire, then you had the Turkic invasions, and then I think we all know the history because it's all written in the textbooks, Akbar, Jahangir, all those, all those barbarians who ruled India. And then you had Mohandas Gandhi and Jawaharlal Nehru who ruined, the, who ruined India for us today. So that is, in brief, very brief timeline of our civilization. All right? All right. Thank, thank you. Thank you, you so much for the question. Thank you. Thank you. thank you. Nice meeting you. Thank you. Okay. Let's bring in some somebody else. I can see Mr. Kanhai. Hello. Please unmute your mic. I thought I was going to get a chance. Anyway. Uh, hello, sir. Good evening. Hello. Uh, Good evening. Uh, I'm speaking from Mumbai. So uh, nice my question, uh, my question was that during partition there was a Hindu majority Karachi and a few Hindu majority villages along the Gujarat Sindh border. So should we have used military force to, you know, make our way into Karachi, secure it, cut it off from Pakistan, and slowly integrate the the Muslim? population into the Indian Indian fold. Should we have used brute force, military power in order to cut off Karachi is basically what my question is. So the answer to your question is, is uh, pretty straightforward. Whatever tools you have at your disposal, you should use all those tools. In certain cases, certain tools are better. It depends on the context. But military force is always an option. We had a large standing army, one of the most modern armies for the 1940s. We had that at our disposal. Why did we not use that? Why did we have to follow all the rules when the opposition, when the Pakistanis were not following any rules? They So, so I to answer your question in very brief, yes, we could have used military force. We should have used military force whether it comes to Karachi, whether it comes to Kashmir in 1948. I mean, why did we not reintegrate and retake Kashmir? Why did Mr. Nehru prevent the army from doing what they were already doing? It, in another three days, we, were, we would have taken all of Kashmir back. But he stopped the army. He ordered them not to go forward. And he took the matter to the UN. So it's all about leadership. If you have a capable leader, a strong leader, a dynamic leader, he or she will take the country in the right direction and they will use every single resource that is available to at our disposal to further the national interest. So the army, yes, it was a very legitimate and valid tool to use if, if, we, if we had the right kind of leadership. It's just a pity that we had leaders like Mr. Gandhi and Mr. Nehru who, who brought us to where we are today. And today also we are so, we are so reluctant to use the armed for, uh, you know, military force. So yes, it's a very good question. Why did we not use the military? And why did we go, go along with the plan that the British created for us, the boundaries that they drew for us? Many of the boundaries were so wrong. They just arbitrarily drew lines on the map. Why did Lahore go to the, to the Pakistanis? Why? It is the, whole, it is the homeland of the Sikhs. Why did Silhet go to Bangladesh? Why did the Chittagong Hill tracks go to Bangladesh, which is East Pakistan? These are ridiculous uh, boundary uh, uh, drawings of the, of the boundary, right? So there was no need for us to accept what the British told us to do. But because we had leaders that the British themselves appointed and put in place, that's why this was done. Right? Thanks, sir. Uh, you, I 
know very well the cost of speaking against Nehru or Gandhi. Uh, so every time I did that in school, I was looked at like I was some leper. You know. So <laughs> thanks. Thanks. I appreciate anyway, it. I'm sure many do. I was finally bringing out the truth. All the best to you, sir. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thanks for your question. Thank you. Thank you. Good question. Good question. Okay. Let us bring in somebody else. I can see Sahil. Let's bring in Mr. Sahil. Hello, sir. Uh, hello, sir. Uh, how are you? I am very well. How are you? Uh, I'm fine, sir. I was waiting for so long. I think <laughs> I wouldn't get a chance. Uh, so, sir, my question is, uh, my name is, first, my name is Sahil Thakur and I belong to Himachal Pradesh. So, sir, my question is that uh, in Himachal Pradesh, I have heard a lot about these Katoch Rajputs, Katoch lineage of Rajputs, uh, those who have ruled here. And I also heard that they had a, a battle with Mughal army. Uh, is it true or, or like what? Can you please elaborate on that? That's a very interesting question. I am certainly very much aware of the Katoch Rajputs. I think they are a Chandravanshi lineage, if I am not entirely mistaken. The thing is, I have not studied the history of Himachal Pradesh in any 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 significant detail. That is the problem. See, let me tell you very clearly, I don't know everything in the world. I haven't read everything in the world. There are areas of knowledge where I have not really ventured into. So I'm going to be very honest with you and I'm going to tell you that I don't know about this because I haven't studied this part of, of history. Uh, I am very much aware of the Katoch Rajputs. They were very uh, they were very good rulers, of course, we know that, in uh, that part of India. And as rulers and as defenders of India, they would certainly have uh, had to go get into conflict with the, with the Turks, with the Mughals. So that would certainly have happened. But what is the exact sequence of events? What who was the ruler who fought the Mughals? When did this happen? I am not quite aware of that. So unfortunately, I cannot answer your questions, your question in, in specifics. But yes, I'm certainly aware of the Katoch Rajputs. I have a friend who is a Katoch. So you know, so, yeah, that's can what I, I can say. Sir, so if, if go on, go on. If that, go on. Uh, so, sir, I am following on you, uh, following you on Twitter, and uh, I've seen that you follow boxing uh, a lot. I think uh, so. Can I ask something about the? So we all know that Mike Tyson was a five feet uh, eleven guy, and he fought like lot taller guys uh, according in in his weight category, but he's still the hardest uh, hardest puncher ever, like. He has such a short width, uh, like length of arm as compared to others. So can you please explain the science behind that hardest one, how he could able to generate so much force in, in uh, like uh, in that with that like short arm of his like as compared to like other counterparts of him. That's a very interesting question. It's something I have not uh, discussed before, but let's let's yeah, sure. Let's take it. So if you look at the career of Mike Tyson, every single heavyweight fight that he fought he was the lighter opponent. He he'd never fought an opponent who was lighter than him. He's a very small guy. If you look at it, uh, if you look at the bigger context of heavyweight boxing, he's I think about five ten or so, which is not really big. But, but he he was the hardest puncher you could find. He had this great left left uh, left uppercut and all that left hook I think, and so on. So the science is very simple. It's genetics and training. You need to have good genetics to be able to produce that sort of force. If you look at Mike Tyson's back, you can see the musculature which he had even at the age of 17 when he was a teenager. He was very muscular. So it's good diet, it's genetics and it's a hell of a lot of training. I mean, you cannot develop into that sort of an athlete, that sort of, that of a fighter 
unless you dedicate your entire existence to that so it's dedication it's training you need the right kind of coaching the right coach and good genetics good diet all that so it it is something that happens only once in 50 years 100 years to you get to get somebody like mike tyson so yeah that's yes. the answer sir all right thanks a lot sir thank you very interesting questions thank you bye okay let's bring in somebody new let us bring in sanath hoybi good evening madam i can't hear you namaste sir hello namaste khoramjari <laughs> khoramjari sir uh well my question is um it is it is just my observation but uh, it seems that the politicians of india are majorly focused on the hindi speaking regions of the country the south seems to be somewhat ignored the east is entirely ignored um so in the name of democracy it seems that the politicians are kind of uplifting only their own kind so my question is is democracy really serving this nation that is a very profound question very profound question so you are right that uh, it is it is certainly not an unfounded claim that uh, the politics at the central level in, in india has been very much north india centric it's mostly been males from north india old men from north india who have ruled the country as prime minister and so on uh, so certainly it is true to some extent now when it comes to hindi hindi is not the natural national language for india it's just a, it is spoken by just a small percentage of indians and yet it was imposed upon india by mr nehru because he liked it and so on uh, what what really needs to happen is that every single state language needs to be given equal priority i would say that the education system should be such that you know you need to have a two language system and education should actually be in the mother tongue whether it is in manipur whether it's in uh, tamil nadu Uh, Andhra Pradesh, Telangana, wherever it is, the the education should be in the mother tongue and in one national language. That would serve the country much better. And then this entire sense of grievance that our language, our culture is being marginalized would go away. So the system is a very colonial system. Earlier you had the English language that was imposed everywhere, English culture, and even today we have that. And Hindi. So today it's in English and Hindi. If you look at India's court system, judicial system. you cannot do anything unless you speak english you have to speak to the lordships in english if you go and speak in hindi if you go and speak in marathi you speak in manipuri they're going to throw you out it's a very colonial system so this certainly needs to change and is democracy serving the country well this current system of democracy is not serving the country it is uh, it is uh, clearly not taking the country in the right direction because if it democracy is supposed to throw up good leaders right you're supposed to have very capable leaders who emerge out of the democratic process and rise to the top now we do have one go- one or two good leaders in the country i'm not saying all are bad but take a place like manipur take a place like manipur look at the history of the past 50 years what did democracy do for manipur manipur has gone through such horrific insurgency drug abuse it was all done by the state the the, the state was neglected until the, the 2010s completely neglected i know what happened in manipur i know what happened in nagaland i know what happened to the northeast the northeast of india got complete step motherly treatment from the central government they put in place various chief ministers who were just looting the state 
I'm not taking names, but yeah. I would say that, you know. So, yeah, this form of democracy is a fake democracy. It's not real, true, representative democracy. Uh, you are allowed to vote once in five years, but you're not allowed to participate in the democratic process. So, things need to change. We need a better system. So, it's a yes, very good sir. point. That so, uh, so, is so uh, talking about this, um, since India is such a diverse culture, is democracy like, can be served for long term? I think democracy is something that certainly can uh, benefit the country if it is implemented properly. Right now, it is not being implemented properly. It's not a real democracy. It's just a pretend democracy. That is why mm -hmm. we are not getting the empowerment of the people at the grassroots level. Because see, if you have some problem in your, in your house, in your locality, and if you go and approach your chief minister or your local MLA, they're going to just ignore you. So that is not democracy. In democracy, they are supposed to help you, right? Whenever you have any problem. So the entire system is built in such a manner that there is no real democracy. There is no, the people are not really benefiting from this. Only the politicians are benefiting, right? So that is what needs to change. It is constructed. The system is constructed in a manner that only benefits the political class. It completely marginalizes the common citizen. You have corruption, you have apathy, you have bad roads, bad infrastructure, bad education, all kinds of problems. You have to face a lot that the politicians never face that. So this needs to change. So it's a very, very interesting point that you brought up. I know, I know how it is, whatever you're facing in Manipur. I know how it is. Oh, by the way, right? I'm from Assam, sir. <laughs> you're from Assam. Oh, okay, okay. But I thought your name was Manipuri. Anyway, Assam, similar similar problems. Similar problems in Assam. Assam, I think, is even worse. <laughs> anyway, thanks for the question. Very Thank good. Thank you, sir. Nice meeting you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Bye. Good night, Thank sir. You. Bye bye. Good night. All right, let's bring in somebody else. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Who do we have? Let us bring in Mr. Aryan. Mr. Oh. Aryan. Good sir, evening, sir. I didn't think that I would come here. Okay, good well, evening. Here you sir. are. Sir, yeah, I'm from I... Delhi. Okay. Uh, thank you for giving me this chance. Uh, sir, my question is uh, we have seen that uh, scripts uh, in. Okay, let me first. In uh, history, uh, where, where there is certain kind of language that is Latin, which is now dead, uh, if we see English language, so it was divided into three parts, uh, Old English, Middle English and New English. And we have seen the script remains changed, but the language was changed. But in India, there are many states where script also changed and language also changed. I, I want to know the reason why does script over a period of time change in any area in country because if we see uh, Arabic script didn't change much of it but the language yes changed like Urdu and Turkic kind of. yeah, yeah yeah very good very good question so let us understand one thing so we know that the English language has a certain script we call it the English script or whatever we call it the alphabet A B C D all the way to Z right and that is something that has been in place for a very long time it was used to write old English and so on now, do we even know this fact that this is not the script of the English language? Uh, yes, the sir. script that is used to write English or German or Spanish or Italian or Swedish or Austrian or whatever the other language is the Latin script. It is a script that originated and emerged in ancient Italy somewhere around 500 BCE. It is 
something that emerged in Italy and because of the expansion of the Roman Empire, this script was spread throughout Europe. It was imposed across Europe. And there were scripts in, in Europe, other scripts, older scripts, like the various uh, runic scripts and so on, which were used to write the Germanic languages and other scripts as well. These scripts were eradicated by this cultural imposition from Rome. And afterwards, when the Roman Catholic Church became the supreme political power in Europe, they ensured that this was imposed all across Europe, wherever Christianity spread. And very quickly, Christianity spread across all across Europe. So everywhere, only one script was imposed. All the local native scripts were wiped out. All the local cultures were wiped out. And that's why we have only one script that is used to write all these European languages, including English. Now, some cultures survived to some extent. For instance, Jap the um, Russian language has its own script, the Cyrillic script, and the Greek language has its own script, the Greek script. So that's just two examples where this did not succeed, but everywhere else it succeeded. So that is the reason why you have one script imposed everywhere in the case of the European countries. When it comes to India, India is a very, very, very old civilization, 10,000 years old. One language has been present throughout this time, which is Sanskrit, which has evolved over time from pre-Vedic Sanskrit to Vedic Sanskrit to post-Vedic Sanskrit to classical Sanskrit. And then you had the upper branch of languages. This thing happened over a period of about 10,000 years. And in these 10,000 years, scripts came and went. So a script, a writing script is simply a vehicle that carries the language. The language stays the same, scripts come and go. So you had the Brahmi script, you had the Kharoshti script, you had the Sharda script, the Gupta script, the Devanagari script, and various other scripts. You have the uh, Tibetan script in which you can write Sanskrit. You have the Mongolian Swayambhu script in which you can also write Sanskrit and so on. So these are various vehicles that evolved and emerged and evolved over time. But the language remained the same to, to a large extent. And of course, we have lots of languages in India, all the upper branch languages, languages of northern India, southern India, and so on. It's a very complex scenario. India is an enormous geography, a subcontinent-sized geography. So it is natural for these scripts to emerge organically over time, over the centuries, over the thousands of years. And also new languages, upper branch languages, daughter languages, the Prakrits, Pali, and various other languages. So that's how it happens. It's a very complex scenario. All right. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, also, uh, we see Pali script. Uh, can you, could you please uh, tell a little bit about Pali script? Uh, I'm not sure if Pali has a script of its own. Pali is a language. Yes, the script that was used was the Brahmi script, if I'm not mistaken. Even Karoshti was used for some time. Uh, so, Pali so Pali, Pali is a language, it is not a script. The Pali language, I think, was most likely uh, written in the Brahmi script for a period of time, and maybe later some other scripts may also have been used. All right, so there's a difference between language and a script. Language is what we speak. A script is the vehicle, written vehicle that we use to codify the language and preserve it and communicate it in the written form. All right, sir. Okay, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Thank, Thank you. you for the questions. Thank you. Very nice. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yes, okay. Uh, whom do I bring in now? Whom do I bring in? I can see. Okay, let's bring in Mr. Rishab. Oh, you're very fuzzy. Hello. Have you been here yes, before? Sorry. Yes, sir. 
Have you been on this uh, on this show before? Sir, no. Sir, no. Okay, okay. Okay, where are you from, sir? Sir, I am from JNK. Okay, great. Sir, my question, question is that. Sir, my question is that. Sir, why Taiwan is not recognized by many countries? Sir, like in Olympics, the Taiwan name was no, uh, never used, and not nor was the flag. Sir, uh, and they both uh, claim that they are the real China. Sir, then uh, which of them is the China that we can relate with the China from history? Good question. Very good question, sir. Very intelligent question. So both are China. Taiwan is actually an island which was in the past it was called Formosa. The the native Taiwanese people are non-Chinese. They are an Aboriginal people who are more closely related to the people of the Philippines. So these are the original Aboriginal Taiwanese people. Then this island was taken over in the past. It was conquered, invaded, and settled by Han Chinese at some point in the past, in the, over the past few centuries. And that is how the Chinese presence in the island begins. Now, uh, in the aftermath of the Second World War, you had this conflict between the Kuomintang and the Chinese Communist Party, Chiang Kai-shek and Mao Zedong. And eventually Mao Zedong was able to prevail and he was able to take over the mainland China. And the Kuomintang Party went and escaped and they settled down in uh, Taiwan, Formosa which is where they continue to rule today. So these are two separate political entities, but uh, the majority population in both places is the same, Han Chinese, right? Because the Aboriginal uh, uh, Taiwanese people are now a minority, if I'm not mistaken, in the island of Taiwan. So now the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, which uh, controls mainland China, is now enormously wealthy and enormously influential because they have... Uh, engaged in a systematic campaign of infiltrating the United Nations, of infiltrating all the supply chains of, of manufacturing globally, and of infiltrating various countries uh, in, in a variety of means, often through trade and also through the Confucius Institutes and also all, all that, and using the power of money and uh, offering loans and so on. So that's why in the past 30-40 years, the Chinese Communist Party has become enormously influential globally. And everybody wants to trade with China. Everybody wants to make money from them. And that's why everybody is willing to accept whatever the Chinese tell them to do politically. So the Chinese refuse to accept Taiwan as a separate country. The Chinese Communist Party claims that Taiwan is a renegade province of China. And that is what they are imposing on the global order. So that, And, and they are using the uh, financial system as a... As, uh, as a means of coercing countries into doing this. So if you want to trade with us, then you need to do what we say in the in the geopolitical global, global arena. So that is the reason why most countries today are very reluctant to recognize Taiwan as a separate country. Even the US doesn't recognize officially Taiwan as a separate country. And even India as of today is towing the Chinese Communist Party's line of not having official diplomatic relations with Taiwan. So it is all because of Th of China's increasing influence of its enormous uh, uh, control of the global manufacturing chains and of, of and because of its uh, economic might that the world is refusing to accept Taiwan as a separate country. All right, sir. Yes, sir. Sir, thank you, sir. Thank you for the question. Very intelligent question. Thank Keep going, sir. Thank you, sir. Jai Shri Ram. Jai Shri Ram. Nice meeting you. Bye bye.
Okay, let me see somebody who has been waiting for a while. Who has been waiting for some time? Okay, okay. Let me bring in uh, Vivek Gautam. Good oh. evening. Hi, sir. It's uh, hi. Thank you for giving me a chance to speak here. I have a question related to physics. Uh, yes. I I have written it down here. I'll uh, take it up one minute. Huh? Yeah. So it's about dark matter and dark energy. Hmm. Okay. So I I I'll read the question. Could the problem of dark matter be solved by treating space-time as a fluid with fluid dynamics and properties of fluids like density, viscosity, and the ability to flow instead of treating it like a fabric? Uh, this way, we could explain dark matter effects in galaxies as increase in viscosity in that region of space-time. This phenomenon either being inherent to space itself or somehow caused by the black hole or space-time fluid flowing into the black hole. Uh, one minute. into the black hole ha huh. and uh, related to dark energy could our universe be continuously falling into an ultra mega supermassive black hole with a diameter far exceeding the diameter of our visible universe this way we could explain the expansion of the universe as the universe progressively falling into the black hole we could uh, also explain the universe beyond our visible universe as regions of the universe moving faster than the speed of uh light relative to us due to the regions being relatively closer to the singularity we could also explain the great attractor as the mega singularity of this god black hole which is beyond our visible universe which attracts all galaxies in the universe and makes them all move in the direction of its attraction we could also explain dark energy okay i think you asking me about dark matter and dark energy and hmm. whether we can treat this the fabric of space time instead of instead of a four dimensional fabric instead of that as a fluid so yes. you know what these are all valid uh, hypotheses what needs to happen in physics is you need to be able to create a mathematical consistent theory based on these ideas that you have and then these theories should be able to make testable predictions that have not been tested before so some new predictions that can be tested right so uh, treating space time as a fluid as a three dimensional four dimensional fluid okay good idea so how are you going to do that you need to create a mathematical model of space time as a fluid with uh, all those uh, navier stokes equations or whatever you want to use for that so you need to be able to do that in order to make the theory work so if you want the theory to be a uh, taken seriously firstly you need to work out all the mathematics you need to model space time as a fluid and then you need to be able to make some predictions that can be tested so you should it should basically uh, be able to explain gravitation now is gravitation something that arises out of, out of a fluid because in general relativity gravitation the force of gravity what we perceive as the force of gravity is actually something that arises out of the curvature of space time the curvature of space time tells mass how to move and mass tells space time how to curve right so that is general relativity which explains this phenomenon very beautifully so this what we're talking about whether you to 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 treat space time as a fluid will it be able to replicate the same effect if it can replicate the same effect then maybe we can take it seriously and then can it make some new predictions if it makes new predictions that are testable then it is a superior model so that is the process that we follow in science and physics um, to to construct a new theory we start with a reasonably good hypothesis you work out the mathematics right 
then you see if it is able to uh, explain all the science, all the phenomena that we currently understand. And then next step is, are we able to make new predictions that can be tested and verified? So what you're saying is certainly uh, an interesting way of looking at things. I'm sure people have done that. Uh, dark energy is actually considered to, is actually hypothesized to be some kind of fluid that permeates space-time, right? So yeah, these are things that uh, are currently being considered because this is the biggest mystery out there. We don't understand gravity. We know that gravity fails in the quantum realm, in the, uh, in the ultra-microscopic scale of the universe. We know that dark matter exists and we don't know what it is. We know that dark energy accounts for 70% plus of the entire mass energy of the universe. And we don't have the even the least clue of what it is. So we certainly need to take newer approaches. Whatever we have been trying for the past 50 years is not working. We need to look beyond string theory, super string theory, 10 dimensions, 13 dimensions and all that. And we need to take new approaches, maybe in four-dimensional space-time or something like that. So very interesting what you're saying. It can certainly be con considered, but it will be considered seriously if you're able to work out the math and create a mathematically consistent model out of it. All right, sir? Yes, yes, sir. And one more thing. Uh, if we were back in ancient times, no, 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 question the same question related to this only. And if we didn't know about the planets, we would say that there's some kind of dark energy moving the sky. So I think that dark matter and dark energy are like placeholders, like from my point of view. Yeah, Could well, we treat it like that? View, no, no, no. From my point of view, it's not a placeholder. It's a, These are genuine observed phenomena. These are not placeholders. This is something we have yeah, observed yeah. and calculated. Yeah, yeah. But uh, more like we don't know what exactly it is. Dark matter, dark energy, we don't know if it's actually matter. It might be the property of space itself causing like that. Because when we look at the galaxies, the way I understand it, uh, the objects that are closer to the center are supposed to spin at a different rate than the ones outside. But the whole galaxy spins as like kind of like a single disk. So it's kind of like a fluid property, I feel. So like that. Well, you could see, you could treat a galaxy as a, as a fluid collection of stars. You could treat each star as a molecule. You could you could uh, model a galaxy mathematically that way, and that's uh, what's actually been done, right? And that's how we came out with this uh, with the realization that there is missing mass out there, significantly more mass than you can see. So these are all mathematically proven things. They, we are we know that this, ex this this exists. Dark matter actually exists because there is something out there that is slowing down the rotation of the galaxies. Every galaxy, almost every galaxy that we see, the rotation curves show us that there is more mass there than we can actually see. Maybe 10 times more mass than is visible. So it's not some imagination. It is something that you can actually calculate and measure based on the rotation rates of the galaxies and so on. So one, when one talks about science, one needs to talk about hard facts, about calculations, about mathematics, about data. Uh, you're, uh, I would say what... Our gut feelings and all those things have no place in science. It's all about hard facts, about data, about calculations, and about mathematics. So that's what I can say about this. All right, sir? Yes, sir. And I wanted to tell you one thing, sir. Uh, the, the Easter Island script is actually very closely related to the Indus no, script, no, no, sir. No, no. Once you go into that and see, sir. It's not a question. question I wanted sir. to tell you. No, I wanted to tell you. I wanted to tell you, it's really closely related. Like, it's it's also more diversified than the Indus script, but you can clearly map each and every symbol back to the Indus script symbol. So I wanted to tell you once, uh, 
like look into that and uh, try, uh, like uh, like make a video on that thank you sir it's called it's called the rongo rongo script of uh, easter island i'm aware of this but hmm. thank you for uh, pointing this out all right thank you nice thank you sir you. thank you yeah bye good night okay whom shall we bring in let us bring in mr uh, moria mr moria hello uh please unmute your microphone am i audible now yes sir yes you are yes sir my question is that gravity is the warping of space time mm -hmm. and uh, yeah. we say that if we want to create a wormhole then we bend the space time and so much mass that it punches and we get a wormhole and on internet we search for i am a 12 student so i don't know much about deep into it but on internet if we search about that then we get a two dimensional sheet kind of thing that the space time so to what exactly is the fabric of space time the fabric of space time is a four dimensional fabric we uh, see the universe that we observe has three dimensions length breadth and height and yes. then we add a fourth dimension of time so all of this together is a four dimensional fabric that we call space time the two dimensional sheet that you see on the internet is just a visual representation to make it simpler to understand because you cannot really visualize something that is four dimensional the only visual representation we understand and we can comprehend is the three dimensional universe but just to make it easy to understand the warping of space time and all that that's why they use this uh, image of a two dimensional fabric right so that is just the visual representation for the sake of popular understanding it's not how the mathematics actually is the mathematics is in four dimensions right now uh, what's the other question you asked the uh, wormholes and all that So how so do we bend the four-dimensional thing? That's about wormhole. How do we bend the fabric of space-time? Well, it is mass. It is the presence of mass, a massive object. Let's say I have a black hole. See, I've got a black hole in my hand, fake black hole. But the presence of a mass is what bends. It warps space-time. So not black hole. So, it's a wormhole. I was talking about wormhole. any mass. I'm talking about any mass. Yes, you asked me how to bend space time right so it yes, is the presence of mass it is the presence of mass that bends space time and it is the bending the warping of space time that we perceive as gravity so that is about the bending of space time the warping of space time now yes. when it comes to wormholes wormholes are certain solutions to certain um, to einstein to einstein's field equations of general relativity so we do have these wormhole solutions in which we can connect uh they are called einstein rosen bridges with which you can connect to disparate regions very far off regions of space time by kind of punching through uh, making a tunnel through two different places mm -hmm. so wormhole is actually a three dimensional object it's not a two dimensional hole it's a three dimensional object and wormholes actually are, have the property that they want to pinch off and close very quickly so it is not something you can uh, and and they would need something like exotic matter like negative mass matter or something to keep them mm -hmm. open or maybe cosmic strings which uh, would keep them open otherwise they would tend to shut off very quickly so we have never observed wormholes this is what our theory tells us that such solutions of einstein's equations do exist but there are problems in keeping these hypothetical wormholes open because they want to shut down they want to close very quickly yeah. almost as as quickly as they are formed so it is all right now in the realm of science fiction we actually haven't seen a real wormhole 
in in reality right so yeah. that's what it is thank you all right sir thank yes. you for the question nice meeting you thanks bye bye okay let us bring in let us bring in mr kumar good evening sir a very good evening sir uh, uh, this is our, this is the second time we are meeting uh, last uh, last week we've also met so okay in that case i'm going to have to put you out because i said oh, i'm going to bring in new people this time i did say that right so, okay this, sir right sir session, fine, yeah. fine sir uh, i just have pointing out one thing uh, a sincere yes. apology from my side uh, because when last time we met i gave a wrong information regarding the plane no, jaguar jaguar plane i said that it is oh, mostly it a about jaguar ah. yes i'm really sorry no, actually no. it's a uh, Uh, so it is a, for all the audience it's a uh, anglo french platform and uh, french air force also used it and retired it in early to 2000s my source was wrong and i was wrong thank you no no problem no need to apologize everybody gets something or the other wrongs from time to time there are things even i don't know it's fine no problem at all no need to apologize i appreciate your thank coming you, here and and actually saying this very nice of you nice to meet thank you, you again all right thank you sir thank very you, much thank you very much thank you, you. bye bye All right, all right. Let's bring in somebody else. Okay, hello. Sir, I've come here to. Sorry, I've come here to apologize for my previous behavior. Which behavior was that? I renamed myself to unknown and all that. Sir, okay, I no problem. All right, all right. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, yeah sir, you want to say something? Yeah, I am extremely sorry for what I, for what I did. No need to apologize. No need to apologize. Nice to see you again. Yeah, okay, sir, I'll see you next time. Apologize for last time when I met you. I forgot to say thank you. No problem, sir. Very nice to meet you. <laughs> all right, all right. Thanks, thanks. Bye bye. Okay, let us bring in. Whom shall I bring in? Whom do I see? Let us bring in Mr. Sharad. Hello, Sharad. Good evening. Good evening, sir. I am following your channel since last six weeks, and I am speaking from Greater Noida. Actually, sir, I am doing B Tech currently in Electrical and Electronics Engineering, and I do want to become an astronomer, an observational astronomer. So, can you guide me, please? Which universities can I take in India? Which uh, or I should go out of India or anything like that? Well, uh, I would, I would give you a very basic general guidance. Go to the best university you can go to. Okay, so what I would say is that doesn't matter whether the university is in India or somewhere else. Whichever is the best university you are able to get admission to and you can afford, you should go there. It doesn't matter if it's outside India. I will never recommend. that you should stay in india which if you if you are good enough to go to the best no, sir, actually, in the world actually sir if i got a scholarship then only i can go out of india so we are not that much finally financially rich but uh, actually i do want to ask that which exams can i give gate will gate physics help or i can apply for gate physics after electrical and electronics engineering i am i you know what i have been out of this entire circuit for quite some time so i am not sure what exam you should give in all that if you want to become an astronomer 
you would need at the very minimum a master's degree in physics with astronomy with you as your main subject so gate and all is not quite the pathway to get a get a master's degree to get into a master's degree you need to have bachelor's degree and then you can apply to universities if you are applying abroad you would need to take the gre i expect the gre and toefl and all that all that stuff gate i think is for engineering for the iits or whatever if i am not mistaken no, so sir, there are gate to... physics gate chemistry and gate mathematics also okay so see like i said i am not quite aware of all this i am not into the uh, profession of giving career guidance so i am not quite the right person to give you a step by step plan to follow to to reach this you know so so i think you need to uh, maybe look up this information online but you would to become an sir, astronomer i have been like, searching about the various sources so i thought that you are the astrophysicist you will be the best person i can teach you astrophysics i can answer questions about astro astrophysics but i cannot tell you in detail about how to get there which exam to give what university is best and all, all that thing i'm not quite sure of okay so i would apologize for that but if you have any question about astrophysics physics all that i can answer that but not Thank about you, career guidance I, I, it is not my strong point you know all right okay sir okay sir nice meeting you nice meeting you okay Thank sir i'm satisfied okay all right let us bring in let us bring in somebody else uh who else do who else who all do we have let me bring in mr prayag hello good evening good evening sir good evening sir i want to ask a question about gandhi ji's assassination sir okay i read a book called political mysteries it is uh, it is written by keval ram malkani sir he was a mm -hmm. journalist and a member of parliament from bjp party and uh, in this book he written that uh, jawaharlal nehru and some members of the congress party were aware of the of were aware of gandhi ji's assassination and they didn't do anything to stop it is it true sir well i haven't read this book so i cannot uh, say for sure if it's true or not and even if somebody has made this claim in a book yes. uh, how are they able to substantiate the claim that mr nehru or whoever else was aware of it i am not saying they were not aware of it uh, but i don't know i'm not sure and has anybody been able to corroborate this claim that uh, this gentleman that you spoke about has made i'm not sure so the thing is i haven't really been interested in the life and career of uh, mr nehru mr gandhi i know the things they have done and they have contributed to the country but who why was he assassinated and how many people were aware of it and all that i am not quite sure because i have not really studied it in, in detail so i don't know how many people were aware of it whether mr nehru knew about it whether some people in the congress party knew about it i don't know so unfortunately i am not able to answer this specific <laughs> particular question okay. all right okay sir it's been a pleasure talking to you sir Pleasure, to, pleasure meeting you. Thank you for thank you for coming. Good thank night. You. Yeah. Okay, let us bring in a couple more people. Let me bring in. Uh, let's me bring in Krishna Dev. Good evening, sir. Please unmute your I'm, mic. I'm audible, right? Yes, you I'm are. Audible. Yeah. So, Mike. Uh, so, I'm from Kerala, sir. But I currently live in Chennai. But I'm uh, next month. I'm moving to. Uh, Mumbai. So I have been moving through different uh, languages in transition, 
So my question is, should Sanskrit be imposed as the national language of India? And how is that possible when uh, today's Indians prefer to speak in English, they are more comfortable speaking in English uh, than any other language, than, than any other English, any other uh, Indian language. And uh, in a social space, in a social space, uh, a, a person who uh, does not speak in English is seen as inferior. So how is that transition possible and how can we execute it maybe in the future? Yeah, very good, very, very good question, very pertinent question. It is not something that can be imposed overnight. It is not something that can, see, first of all, Sanskrit is not something that is going to be imposed on the country. It is our civilizational language. Our ancestors spoke it. It was mm -hmm. the highest civilization language. It was spoken across Asia. It's not something that is going to be imposed if it is ever brought back. It is mm. something that is going to be restored to our people. Restored. Imposition restored. is something that is a foreign thing that is imposed upon you. So today we are all comfortable in English. It is because of the foreign language that was imposed upon us by mm. our colonizers. It was done against our ancestors' wishes. It was done by force. Now, today we are all suffering from the consequences of that. We are more comfortable in English. But if we want to regain our self-respect and if we want to regain our status as a civilization, we have to take this hard measure of restoring Sanskrit to its right status. Look at what the Israelis did. The Jews had been across, spread across Europe for centuries. Mm. None of them spoke Hebrew. But when the nation was, of Israel was formed, Hebrew was restored. It was brought back. And within 20-30 years, everybody was speaking Hebrew as their first language. Because it is their ancestral civilizational language. Mm. Even though people had not been speaking it for centuries. Similarly, we, we need to do it, whether it's North India, South India, we, it is our language, all of us, it is the common thread that binds all of us together. Yeah, that's true, sir. That's so true. It is, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it is yeah. something that will take time. It won't happen in one week, one month, one year, one decade. It may take 20, 30 years, maybe a couple of generations. It is certainly possible when the right kind of leader comes to power. But it should happen. It should happen. Thank you, sir. That's it, Right, sir? sir? Yeah, thank you. Very good question. Thank all you, right. Thank you. Bye. Bye. So I will take one more last person. Who's gonna? Whom shall I take? I will bring in Gauri ji. Good evening. Good evening, ma'am. Namaste, sir. Namaste, ma'am. Namaste. Sir, actually, I'm uh, from Pune, but now I'm in, working in Boston. So I'm okay. Yeah. Good morning. Yeah. Good. It's afternoon. Yeah. So, afternoon now. All right. Sir, my question is that. Uh, like how Indians uh, who come to US for work and then not work, education work, uh, whereas they don't have a government policy of going back, whereas China is harnessing their graduates to come back and uh, like do indigenous research in their institutes. What is your take, sir? Like, should we identify ourselves as global citizens or should we go back and uh, contribute to our? like indigenous uh, technology and stuff. I mean, because where where do we draw balance for this? Like now, yeah. Yeah, very, it's a very, very good, very pertinent question. The Chinese government has a very clear policy of, of attracting its great, its best talent back into China. So they want their young students to go to various countries, usually the US, etc., for education get the knowledge get the or get all the expertise and then come back to china so they have made the they have created the right environment that actually offers excellent opportunities to young chinese so that they can come back to china and contribute to china and they will get excellent uh, opportunities there very high pay 
and a very good future in india that environment that situation has not been created let's say you are studying in the us and you want to come back to india and contribute to the country but the moment you do that will you get a job in india will they treat you with respect the kind of respect you will get in the us will you get the same kind of career path in india today that you would get in the us otherwise these questions the answer is no today india wants the the policy of the government thus far has been to to uh, encourage indians to go away to go to other countries and contribute there look at mr sundar pichai look at mr whoever else right uh, satya nadella and so on so many there are tens of thousands of indians who are contributing to the economy and the intellectual property of the us which they could have been done been doing in india but the environment has not been created in india it is not there today so for instance hypothetically if you wanted to come back to india you could be committing career suicide you know that is the harsh reality that is staring you in the face so my suggestion is very simple to all of you who are in this situation spend the next 10 20 years developing yourselves rising to your full potential becoming experts in whatever you are and one day when the environment is created in india which will welcome you back at that point in time come back to india when you have made something of yourself and when you are in a position to really contribute something valuable to the country for the time being be selfish invest in your own personal growth and development that's all i would say thank you sir thank you all right makes sense yes okay thank you so much for coming nice meeting you yes nice to meet you sir yeah all right uh, i apologize to everybody else who is in the line now but i'm going to have to end it now otherwise it's going to take another couple of hours so thank you to everybody who asked questions thank you to all of you who who tried coming into the stream unfortunately i can't take everybody but it was very nice talking to all of you and we will keep on doing this this was a great session great fun and i will see you all next time thank you to everybody thank you bye good night good day